stable, high quality interactions that allow our students to be successful. So what I need to put out in that context is that every interaction we have with our young people can either increase their resilience or re-traumatize them and, and make it less likely for them to be successful. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. This is year 17 for me in the classroom, and this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. We want to shout out everybody that's watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the go. We appreciate y'all big time. Jeff, man, it's winter break. We made it. We made it to winter break. <laughs> yeah, barely by uh, <laughs> by barely. the skin of our teeth, as they as they say. I guess um, you know. If, if rarely in my career, I think, has it felt more important for people to have a break of some sort uh, than it than it does this year. Absolutely, absolutely. So sh shout out to all of you, especially educators, classroom teachers who who are finally at the, the halfway point of the school year and have a moment to sort of um, hopefully uh, debrief and, and recollect yourself and get some rest and get some uh, needed self-care in for sure, whatever that looks like to you. So we hope everybody enjoys an absolutely wonderful winter break. It's really, really crazy times right now and it's crazy out there, but um, you know, you earned you earned some rest. You earned some some opportunity to to binge watch whatever you've been waiting on, including all of the above. Which you know, if you go to our website aotashow.com, you could catch all three seasons. No, wait, we're on season four now. Four yeah, seasons man. worth of episodes exploring all the the dope critical work that needs to be done and is being done in the world of education. But um, for this episode here, Jeff, what, what do we have on the agenda today? Well, Manuel, as always, we got a good one for everybody. And I'm excited today because we I think we're on like a little bit of a of a streak, uh, kind of recently. But um, but we're bringing back some of the most compelling, some of the most interesting, some of the most amazing guests we have had uh, in previous seasons. Right. In prior years and bringing them back to kind of revisit some of the, the genius and brilliance they bring to our important discussions of education. And today is no exception. We have back with us um, really someone who uh, I think came on two years ago and uh, just, just brought so much knowledge and wisdom to our conversation about school culture and trauma-informed education. Um, and that is David Adams, um, who's coming to us all the way from New York City, um, where he works with uh, the Urban Assembly Schools, a network of schools across uh, the boroughs of New York City. And uh, we're going to kind of dig into this topic around social emotional learning. Right. And so there's been so much talk this year about, you know, we got to attend to social emotional learning and students, you know, mental health needs. But how are we doing? Right. We're, we're a semester into the year. How have we done with that work so far? What do we still need to do? We are still neck deep in the pandemic. The numbers are worse than they've ever been. And kids are feeling the brunt of that. Right. Especially in, in all the places across the country where they've been only experiencing school through a computer screen for, you know, for coming up on a year now. So David's here. Uh, we're going to you know, dig deep into, into this topic today, and uh, you definitely want to stick around, folks. It's going to be a great discussion. Awesome. Very timely. Very timely. All right, folks, but up first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, thanks for watching All the Above. We really appreciate you, and we need your help. We're trying to get the word out about all the above to everyone. Here's what you can do. Go to aotashow.com. That's our website. All the links to all of our content is there. You can share our stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Send the links to friends, colleagues, educators you know who could benefit from this type of show. Help us spread the word about all the above. Thanks. Enjoy the show.
All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, you know, like you said, we have reached winter break, or, you know, for, for many folks around the country, we are at or near winter break. And uh, it would only be fitting that we are handing out some grades, man. Got a report card. The semester break is here. We got to see how everybody All did. Right. Let's look at those grades, folks. Let's look at those grades. First grade for today, Jeff, is a B. Mm, okay. I mean, you know, pretty good, right? College eligible, uh, as, they, as they say. Uh, that is true. That is true. However, this B stands for by, by... You know, this name, I hardly even want to say the name, Jeff. I thought we were done saying this person's name. <laughs> I know that people do not tune in to hear this person's name, but um, bye-bye, Betsy. Mm, that just, it, it's music to my ears, man. <laughs> we could just put that on repeat for the rest of the episode. That is true, that is true. Um, and this story pertains to looking ahead at what's in store for the Biden administration and particularly what some big time urban school districts want to see from a new uh, Biden administration. So let's get into the details here. Um, the Council of Great City Schools, which is an advocacy organization uh, composed of leaders from the 76 largest urban school systems in the nation, recently released its recommendations to the Biden transition team as it considers cabinet picks and its legislative agenda. The council identified three broad categories of need for school systems. One is the substantial financial shortfalls that are facing districts due to the weakened economy. The second identified broad category of need is the safety and health of students and staff due to, due to the pandemic, of course. And thirdly, racial and ethnic equity and justice. Some of the more interesting proposals included things like appropriating $200 billion for K-12 schools, including emergency stabilization funds, emergency Title I and IDEA funds, and infrastructure funds. Also appointing a big city superintendent to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The council also asks that the Biden administration prioritize school staff, students, and families for vaccines and review and reissue for accuracy and completeness all CDC guidelines to schools issued over the last eight months. The council also would like to see Title I funding tripled and they would like to see a waiver to the carryover limit due to COVID-related adjustments in services to students. And they also want to expand Title III funding to support learning loss among English language learners. Additionally, they say that they would like to reestablish the Every Student Succeeds Act required testing once on-site testing can be safely administered, including possibly spring 2021. And they want to postpone the National Assessment of Educational Progress until 2022 or 2023. Now, Jeff, there's a lot packed into this into this report. We'll link it below this episode and we'll link it on our website so folks can see all the details of what this council is, is asking for from the Biden transition team or asking them to consider. But what are your thoughts um, at this time about what they're, they're asking for? Yeah, you know, I, I would say on the whole, Manuel, there's a lot of good stuff in there in the sense that, um, you know, if I really zoomed out and said like, what are they pushing for? It's for pretty massive investments in public education, right? And in, in one form or another. So I'm glad that they're naming. We need, you know, short-term influxes of cash to just stabilize school systems, right? And even though in a lot of parts of the country, um, we have, we're not sort of yet feeling the major budget cliffs that still can come because of the economic downturn in terms of, you know, forcing layoffs and forcing school closures or, you know, states and districts having to do radical stuff like, well, let's shorten the school week to four days a week or, you know, those kinds of decisions are real things that could come, right, as the result of these, uh, you know, of the economic downturn. So we need stabilization dollars there, right, um, not only to save schools and the, you know, the enterprise of education, but also school districts are some of the largest employers, <laughs> you know, in, in lots of places around the country. And so if we're talking about massive layoffs at one of the largest employers, the ripple effect of that, right? On like how many people then are not going to be able to buy groceries, not going to be able to pay the mortgage, not going to be able to, you know, do all the other economic activity they do. 
Um, you know, this this is a, a major need that even goes beyond just the scope of purely, you know, teaching and learning and the, and the running of school. So I really appreciate that. I do um, some of the like most interesting parts of it that stood out to me was the push to eliminate the um, the limits on carryover of funds. And a lot of our, you know, a lot of our viewers may not, um, you know, may not know offhand what that means. But, uh, you know, in general, the federal government's, uh, you know, major largest way of funding schools is with Title I dollars. And those need to be spent every year within the calendar year. Right. So if you if you have not spent all your Title One dollars and it's June 10th, you better hurry up because you got to spend them by June 30th every year. Right. And so my understanding of what they're pushing is for at least a you know one time uh, flexibility for districts to be able to carry over funds from one year to the next precisely because things have been so crazy this year, right? And the needs are not less, but we may, may we may want to be able to do stuff like double down on programming over the summer or, you know, expand some of our services that we're offering to students in the, in the next year um, and shouldn't necessarily lose those dollars just because we weren't able to spend them in, in the normal kinds of ways we would because of the pandemic. So, you know, I, I would need to read up more on like the, the nitty gritty details of what they're proposing, but that I thought was really interesting. Um, and then something that, frankly, I just disagree with um, is the, the push to reinstate standardized testing this year. And I would say, you know, regardless of what solutions that we can, you know, figure out, uh, you know, uh, to, to somehow do some version of potentially safe testing this spring, it, you know, I, I don't think our standardized testing is going to tell us anything particularly useful this, th this spring. I think it is something that's just going to have a corrosive effect on teaching and learning for the rest of the school year. And, um, and I think it would be a huge mistake to put our time, energy, and political will into trying to figure out how to make testing happen this spring, when what we need to do is try to figure out how to make school work well, especially since a lot of school for the, likely for the remainder of the school year is still gonna be virtual um, for a huge number of kids uh, across the country and for the teachers who are trying to figure out how to engage them via Zoom and other, other platforms. So. Um, so overall, you know, some good stuff in there, and I'm, I'm glad they're pushing. Hopefully we'll have a much more receptive federal audience than we have had with, you know, with Betsy, uh, you know, and her just like war on public education. But um, I, the testing push there does concern me a little bit, and I, I wish they had not included that. So what, what say right, you, folks, You heard it here. Mr. Jeffrey Garrett is um, advocating for the end of standardized testing in all of its forms, from here on out, that's <laughs> I am, it. I am not finally, advocating we finally got him for on the our wholesale. Side. Awesome. No, I hear you. I hear you. It definitely, <laughs> you know, ridiculous to try to push for any kind of standardized testing during this school year. I think, especially, you know, they yes. know only where it's it's yes. um, where it can be done safely in person. So we're not even talking about standardized testing in like a really standardized way. It'd be like maybe this district, maybe that district, but not this one, not that other one. So you know, to me, what is it worth the effort to do that? I, I get that. I agree with you there yeah. for sure. Overall, I would say a lot of these requests are, I mean, they make sense, but for me, I'm, I, I kind of feel like they lack some imagination, really. A, a lot of these are about funding and, and pushing for more funding, of course, which is, is obviously needed, especially given the condition of um, the, the economy and what we're looking at in terms of uh, budgetary shortfalls down the line. Absolutely. But they had racial justice as one of their top three broad categories, but they didn't really say much about it. They mentioned uh, updated civics instruction and, and something about social justice teaching, but they didn't really go into details about what they consider to be social justice or social justice teaching or anything like that. Um, they did recommend bringing back the um, Obama era My Brother's Keeper initiative and, and recommended one, a similar one for girls. But besides that, I didn't really see anything that really addresses the racial reckoning that our country um, is facing or, or, or has faced over the summer and some are trying to act like we're already past that. So I didn't see much there. I didn't see much imagination around what are we, what should schools really look like once this pandemic is over. I understand that the immediate need right now is to address the pandemic 
and get schools um, stable so that you know there is a school system left after this. I, I get that, but I, I really think this is a time, and so many folks have said it, so many folks have said it, like this is really a time to reimagine what our school system looks like. And you know, if we look at what's being pushed here, if all this were to come to fruition, basically it'd be a return to normal, you know, quote unquote normal pre-pandemic schooling with you know more stable funding. I don't know if that's enough anymore, you know? In fact, I know that's not enough anymore. I think politically it's it's safe to ask these things, but it's just, you know, there, there, there are areas where we could be bold and I didn't see that boldness anywhere really in here. They, they mentioned uh, teacher loan forgiveness and what I saw was them say like reinstate teacher loan forgiveness and make sure it's stable, whatever was there in the past. Well, I mean, why not go a step further? Like anybody that's entering our public school system as a teacher, especially given the the uh, teacher shortage that existed before the pandemic and is only going to be worse after the pandemic, like why not make it so that anybody who enters the teaching profession and stays there for however many years has all their loans forgiven? Why not just say that? Why just reinstate what was there in the past, which of course has a whole bunch of limitations wrapped around it? I don't know. I, I feel, you know, I support their calls for more funding. I support their calls for undoing a lot of the damage that Betsy did. I just feel like they could have went a little further. I feel like this is a time to really be bold and and ask for something big and push for something big. And you know maybe the end result of that is something more moderate in the center. But don't don't start with that moderate agenda. And this to me looks kind of moderate. Of course, we're talking big numbers in in terms of funding. But you know I would like to see more imagination in there. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you said that, Manuel. I, I fully agree with you. Um, I, you know, I think there is there's a certain degree to which, like, the Council of Great City Schools is not like a radical community organization that's right. that's trying to like you know rock the boat on a lot of things, right? Um, like these are the this is sort of the like liberal big school system people you know leadership across the country, right? Um, so they 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 stay in their lane, right, and are very likely to. And also, there might be some political calculation in there, knowing that what they're who they're attempting to influence is a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration that it whose literal slogan was "Build Back Better," which is like you know nothing's going to change; we'll just make it slightly yeah. better, right? So, uh, so maybe there's some political calculation we're we're just seeing from them in there. But I will tell you something that I think is both within their lane and also the uh, uh, an incredibly important place to push that we are not pushing well enough right now, right? Which is the, the sort of web of social issues that impact education that we have gotten so comfortable sort of outsourcing the, you know, the negative impacts of, of our economic inequalities uh, to, you know, to schools to say, well, fix it, you know, fix poverty, just go to school and work hard and then you won't be poor. Right. Um, meanwhile, we have, you know, <laughs> poverty wages that, that get paid to people. Right. So, um, I do think there would there is an opportunity, and I wish they had been able to include something that is perhaps a bit more of a broader, um, you know, uh, economic agenda to say if we are going to succeed in schools, right, with serving all students and helping all students achieve high levels of learning and self actualization and all you know all the great things we want to see. The pandemic has really just ripped the Band-Aid off <laughs> on the fact that the, our societal inequities, economic, racial, etc., run so deep in this country and school is not an effective Band-Aid alone for those things, right? So I would have loved to have seen them take a stance on something like healthcare in our communities, right? Or, um, you know, jobs programs or... Um, wages, right? Some of the things that like the reason we are trying to remediate the oppressive effects of our current system in school is because we let those systems, you know, continue. And what we need to do is make sure families have enough to survive, right? Or more than just to survive, but to thrive, right? Um, and so I wish I had, you know, perhaps seen a little more uh, of, of a courageous set of asks around the impact uh, around the systems that impact school in their proposals. Yeah. I'm not surprised we didn't, but I think that would have been, you know, a great, a great thing to see included. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just, I know, I know Biden's not known for being bold and not known for thinking big and being imaginative, but I just think that's what we need. You know, we saw 
like it or not, we saw a yeah. lot of boldness from from Betsy and from Trump around education, you know, in terms of funding for religious schools and, and changing Title IX and, and attacking curriculum, attacking uh, 1619 Project and, re- and instating something like um, or creating something like the 1776. Like these are bold things. And why can't we be bold? Just saying. Nah, we we get none of that, man. <laughs> don't don't yeah, hold your breath for sure. <laughs> man, well. For sure. All right, Jeff. All yeah. right. So, next grade on the on on for the today's do now. What do we got? What do we got? All right, man. Well, next grade is an I. An I. So you know, yes. As a teacher, I'm told I'm not supposed to give I's or incompletes. You know, they need a letter grade. It's the end of the semester. There's got to be a letter in there. You're not allowed to give a, a I or incomplete. So. I don't know, man. This better not be I for incomplete. Yeah, well, it most certainly is an I for, for incomplete. And uh, I think it's fitting, though, because this I for incomplete comes to us from a coalition of uh, students, parents, and community groups uh, from across the state of California, but especially in the cities of Oakland and Los Angeles, who are suing the state for its failure to completely educate uh, the children, particularly low-income black and brown children um, within our state, uh, which is required by, uh, by the California state constitution. So uh, we're gonna get into this story here. It's brought to us by some excellent reporting from Vanessa Racano of KQED, which is a public radio station up in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So shout out to uh, Vanessa and KQED. And um, they bring us this story profiling, uh, in particular, students in Oakland who are part of a larger group that has filed a lawsuit in early December accusing California and its top education leaders of violating the state constitution by denying traditionally underserved students equal access to educational opportunities during the pandemic. In California, the state has a constitutional duty to provide equal access to education to all students, said Jesslyn Friley, an attorney with the firm Public Counsel, who helped file the suit. Our theory is that the state has fallen behind on that responsibility, and during the pandemic, it has gotten only worse. Now, the suit was filed in Alameda County Superior Court, and it calls out the state on and its education department for mishandling remote education by failing to provide districts with adequate guidance and neglecting to ensure that students, teachers, and parents have the basic tools and support needed for distance learning. Uh, the suit also accuses the state of failing to hold school districts accountable for meeting distance education standards that were put in place by the state legislature in response to the pandemic. So, Manuel, I would love to get your take on this because, you know, we <laughs> I think we both um, have expressed numerous times on this show um, our frustration with the realities of distance learning during the pandemic with the feeling that you know much more needs to be done, but also with some of the realities of being an educator in this context and how challenging and difficult and, and demoralizing um, it has been and can be for folks. So really curious to get your take on this, um, this lawsuit and what, what you're thinking. Yeah, man, this is tough. Like this is tough because I feel for the parents, the parents who were um, quoted in this article, I feel for them. One of them was talking about how her twins who were, I think I think second graders um, in the spring, how they didn't hear from their teacher um, much at all once the schools closed. I think she said they heard like the teacher logged in for Zoom like once or twice between March and May, which is, you know, especially for a second grader, like they basically missed all those months of education. So I yeah. really feel for these it's parents. Egregious. I cannot fault them at all for being upset with um, the way distance learning has gone, for sure. At the same time, I, I I don't know any school system that I'm aware of in the nation that was like prepared for this. This is so, I mean, I'm tired of the word unprecedented, but this is like so unprecedented. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that our, our California Department of Education 
like right away, tried hard to get Chromebooks out there, tried hard to work with Google and, and other folks from uh, Silicon Valley to get technology out there, tried really hard to implement legislation to make sure that that school systems were, were engaging with their students. And I know myself as a teacher, especially this fall, like there's all these requirements that we have to follow to show that we're tracking attendance, that we're doing all we can to reach out for students, that we have, that we're providing instruction on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, I, I honestly don't know what more our state could have done in the spring when this happened. I don't personally have any like inclination that the state was like not taking it seriously or taking too long to like, you know, push for this or push for that. At the same time, I know the system failed. And I think this is one of those cases where the, the failures across the system, like nationally, and I really feel for these parents, I'm not mad at the lawsuit. I appreciate that the parents in the article mentioned that it's, you know, they don't blame the teachers specifically. They they blame the system for not being prepared. And I more than anything appreciate that they the parents in this article mentioned a program that did work. So they they mentioned a program called, I think it was Oakland Reach, which was a summer learning program. And they said in that program, families were each each family with an enrolled student had a family liaison who would check in with them and they get phone calls in the morning just checking for like, you know, if there's any tech issues or this or that. And you know, this parent said that the learning that their students received over the summer, thanks to this this nonprofit, was phenomenal. So you know, I appreciate that being held up as like a model of what distance learning should look like, which is like tremendous involvement from community resources, parent resources, everybody in it together to make sure that no child is being um, forgotten and make sure that every household is able to, to tap in and engage with their learning for sure. That's difficult to do across an entire, you know, an entire state, no less. So I, I'm not mad at the lawsuit. It's just, um, I, 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 I honestly think that like our leaders did what they could at the moment. And the problems with distance learning are problems that are above and beyond the California Department of Education. We're talking poverty, we're talking lack of broadband access, we're talking you know, all the systemic issues that that we talk about on this show regularly. So yeah, man, it's it's tough. It's tough. I feel for the parents. I get it. But at the same time, like I don't I really don't know what could have gone differently in the spring for such an unprecedented out of nowhere type of event. But, you know, maybe that's just me. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm similarly conflicted as you are. And actually, when I saw this, um, you know, this story, typically I'm I'm all in favor. I'm always like, Sulem, let's like, like <laughs> bring on the lawsuits, man, because there is so much injustice. And that is one of the primary levers we have, at least within the kind of, you know, outside of like protest and uprisings. Right. Like within the system, it's one of the most powerful levers we have to actually force change. The problem with lawsuits, though, is on a couple of fronts. One, they almost never actually go to a ruling, right? They always end in a settlement. And what happens with all of these settlements is they give some chunk of money, which sounds huge, like $200 million, but it's over a period of years. And when you spread it out over hundreds of schools or thousands of schools or whatever, right, it actually isn't all that much money. And it's for, you know, it's implemented for a few years with some program to like, you know, mitigate some issue, right? And I don't mean to dismiss, uh, you know, to be dismissive, even though I know my tone kind of sounds that way. But my point is lawsuits are not always the right tool. And in this case, I actually don't think, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm mostly with you in that I don't think that the problems that are being exposed right now are actually primarily educational problems, right? They're manifesting in school, right? But the fact that families don't have food to feed themselves, the fact that communities, whole swaths of communities, don't have access to high-speed internet access, the fact that school systems don't have enough devices, Chromebooks, laptops, iPads, etc., didn't already have enough of them to give every kid one to be able to engage in school, right? Um, the fact that we didn't have... Um, you know, enough sort of supplies, materials, readiness on hand to, uh, as a society to handle a pandemic and keep it from getting so out of control that we in California have had to have school closed for the better part of a year now, right, is not the fault of the school system, right? And it's not the fault of education, at least 
holy. And so, I, you know, in as much as I appreciate the effort, I agree that um, education as a system needs to be held accountable. The kind of egregious example we heard that I think was was certainly more prevalent in the spring. And I would say it was actually like unacceptably prevalent kids and families who just experience like we haven't heard from our teacher in months. Like right. we got these packets from the school and we just ain't seen the teacher in forever. And frankly, the collective bargaining agreements that were put into place in the spring that put limits on or excluded teachers from having to do any synchronous instruction was just super problematic. Most of that kind of stuff has been mitigated or addressed with the new state legislation. So, you know, I, I I don't know. I'm, I'm torn about this. In general, I'm like, yes, push the system. But I also feel like maybe you're pushing the wrong people, frankly, um, right now. And also, like, educators have been working so freaking hard, man. And this yeah. stuff is not easy to do. And, um, you know, just because we're we're not getting great results right now, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I think we should jump to the conclusion that like the education system in and of itself is, you know, has just been a abysmal failure in this moment. Like this is a crazy circumstance that we have, it's exposing the flaws in our society and that we put too much on schools to, to resolve. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm torn with you on this one, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, shout out to parents for advocating for, you know, what's best for their kids for sure. I'm certainly interested in where this goes. And I agree with you. I think a, a, a lot of the worst cases of this were back in the springtime when things really just fell apart around us. And speaking for myself as a classroom teacher this fall has been very different in terms of like the accountability. I mean, there's, there's so much in place, at least within my district, and I think it's statewide, to, to make sure that teachers are offering instruction on a daily basis and kids are learning and kids are being, uh, you know, their attendance and engagement is being tracked, like that's all in place. And I can't expect it to have all been magically put in place immediately once school closed. So yeah, man, it's tough, it's tough. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that about does it, folks, for today's Do Now. And um, you know, this is, all of this is difficult. All of this is, is challenging work. And I'm looking forward to the seminar where we can learn about how, um, or discuss how schools and, and educators could, um, you know, really keep a, a, a focus and a, a lens on social emotional learning with regards to what the kids are going through. Because as hard as it is for us adults, I couldn't imagine being a kid doing online school or even hybrid school. So that's up next in our seminar with David Adams. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are thrilled and excited to have you with us. Uh, we have a very special guest, someone who has been with us before. Uh, it was a couple of years ago and he is back. We have David Adams coming to us all the way from New York City, uh, all the way on the other side of the country today. Uh, welcome back to All the Above, David Adams. Jeff, it's so happy to, to, to be here. I'm really excited to be back. I know it's virtual this time, but I feel like uh, we are in the same place in the same time. And I know that we're connected with some really important educational issues today. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, let me uh, not only refresh you on who David is, but also uh, update you because a couple of things have happened. As you know, we only bring the dopest guests here on All the Above. And uh, because we bring such incredible guests, um, they also get promotions since the last time you seen him. So, uh, so let me reintroduce you uh, to David Adams. David is the Senior Director of Strategy at the Urban Assembly, which is a nonprofit that has created and supports over 20 district schools in New York City, which of course is the nation's largest school district. Um, they serve communities that have been long underserved by our traditional school systems. Uh, David was previously the social emotional learning coordinator for District 75, which is the portion of the New York City school system that serves uh, some of the highest needs special needs students, uh, where he shaped the district's approach to social emotional learning for students with severe cognitive and behavioral challenges. He has worked internationally in schools in England and has published multiple academic papers around the relationship of social emotional competence and student academic and behavioral 
Outcomes. David is the co-author of The Educator's Practical Guide to Emotional Intelligence, which was published just this year, and he is a civil affairs officer in the U.S. Army Reserve. Welcome back, David, to All the Above, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Manuel. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on again. Uh, glad to have you on again. Too bad we're not in our, our fancy TV studio, but you know, <laughs> things happen. Times change. We'll be back there one day, one day. So so let's talk about it. SEL is a um, bit of a buzzworthy term or, or, or buzzworthy acronym in education circles these days. And, and most folks admit that SEL is important. Um, most folks admit it's even more important during distance learning, pandemic teaching times. But in terms of what you're actually seeing out there, what are we actually doing with regards to teaching and supporting social emotional learning in schools? Well, Manuel, that's a great question. Um, as you said, you know, uh, this has been a time now where people are really focusing on uh, the social and emotional dimensions of learning. Uh, my own children have been uh, at, on remote learning now for about four or five months. And I remember my wife told me, you know, I realize now that they can do the learning, uh, but they get frustrated when they, they have difficulty or um, it's not about can they understand it? It's about are they motivated to to get it done? Right. And so if before this was kind of a abstract notion for parents or community members or politicians or policymakers with regards to understanding how social and emotional skills play a role in students ability to learn. In 2020, it is no longer an abstract notion. It's clear as day. Um, and now schools are trying to figure out not just is it important, right, but how do we do this in ways that make sense? So uh, here's what I've seen across the country, and hopefully this will be helpful to your listeners. Um, the first thing is being explicit, right? Uh, making sure that young people can identify and activate social and emotional skills in order to be successful. Uh, that means when they have an assignment, we need to talk to them about how do we set and achieve goals. Uh, my two sons, Elijah and Isaiah, have been talking to me about time management, uh, talking to me about I got to be back at class at 12.55 pop. You know, I'm going to study now. I'm going to play later. Although it's usually the other way around. We're working <laughs> on it. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that are usually the implicit aspects of teaching and learning that we need to make explicit. If we're going to send kids home and say, we need to get this done, we need to tell them about how do we set and achieve goals? How do we manage our time? And then how do we make sure we have responsibility to ourselves and to the classroom and, and making sure that that, that happens? Uh, the second thing I want to talk about is making sure that teachers are aware of their own social and emotional competencies. How are they modeling these things for young people so that young people can see not just what teachers say, but what they do? Right? That means that when teachers are getting frustrated, they're naming their, their emotions. I'm feeling frustrated because um, when teachers are having difficulty with uh, the many different technical aspects of remote learning, whether that's Zoom or Google Classroom or something like that, being able to talk through their problem solving. Right. Uh, here's my challenge. This is what I'm doing. Here's how I'm managing my emotions in order to get to that outcome. So that's the second thing that we need to do is we need to make sure teachers are aware of the social emotional competencies and then are articulating them as they saw through them. Uh, the last thing and most important thing is that we're not just teaching SEL competencies in isolation. Right. Uh, students need to know the SEL concepts. They need to be aware of them. They need to be able to activate them. But in order to do that, we need to teach them. And then we need to integrate them into every single thing a student does. How are the instructional formats that teachers are choosing activating social and emotional skills? What are the extracurricular activities that students have access to? Even in a remote context that allows them to do things like communicate effectively, solve problems, contribute to their community. What are they doing in the context of social and emotional supports or behavioral supports? Right. We know that a lot of folks have been focusing on social and emotional supports, things like counseling, things like mentoring. But we got to make sure that those social emotional supports lead to social and emotional learning. What are students actually learning from those experiences? Are they learning how to do these things for themselves? So we are empowering those young people to take the, the education that they need and be successful throughout their life. Yeah, David, I really appreciate that. And I'm going to I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate here maybe for a second and say, like, 
you know, that, that sounds great, what you just said. Um, and especially that point about integration of social emotional learning into kind of every aspect of instruction and, and, and what takes place with, within teaching and learning in a school. But, you know, there, there's certainly a camp of folks out there who, you know, who might hear that and say, well, um, you know, that's all well and good. Uh, but, you know, my kid needs needs skills, right? Needs like content knowledge and skills that's going to make them a competitive applicant for college or going to make them, you know, successful in their career when they when they leave school. And, um, you know, colleges aren't checking for um, SEL skills on on, you know, on your SAT score and on your application. Right. And so, um, you know, when you hear that kind of thing, whether that's maybe from parents or whether that's from even from other educators, how do you respond and how do you kind of make the case to people that um, that social emotional learning deserves the same kind of uh, prioritization, let's say, in in what we think of as teaching and learning? Great question, and I appreciate uh, your your ability to to play the the role that we need to have to have a good conversation. So thank you. Um, so you know, and I heard you say that colleges aren't checking for uh, SEL skills; they're checking for SAT skills. Um, but here's the thing: employers are when when we are looking at the top three skills that our employers are asking for their employees to demonstrate. The number one skill is to be able to communicate your thoughts and ideas effectively. That is a social emotional skill. The number two skill is to be able to work collaboratively in a team. That is a social and emotional skill. It's not till you get into four or five that we look at content level skills that are really focused on can this person do this. Now we have things like can they uh, can folks critically think. And that's integrating cognitive and social emotional outcomes. Look, Jeff, I know for a fact you've been following this last election, right? And I know that you have seen that the social and emotional aspects of reasoning impact people's <laughs> ability to take the right information out and make good decisions. People with college degrees, people who are well-educated are struggling to, to identify error in their thinking and the thinking of others because they haven't developed in their social and emotional skill sets. Right. So just because colleges don't test for it doesn't mean that is not important. Just because you graduate and nobody's saying, you know, how well are you doing these things doesn't mean that employers are not pulling on these aspects of who we are as opposed to um, with regards to what it means to being an employee. Now, let's talk about what it means to be in community with each other. Uh, and let's talk about the role of schools in terms of civic development. Right. When public schools were developed, they were developed as common schools with the notion that those who could participate in society, that in that point was only white males with landowners, uh, needed to be equipped in order to contribute to our society. Now, we're struggling as a nation every single day to expand that idea of who is part of that community, right? Who gets to be part of the we and the we the people. But regardless of that, our schools play an important role, a crucial role in teaching our young people how to live in community with each other. And those are social and emotional skills. Those are skills like listening, perspective taking. Those are skills like valuing others uh, who are different from you. Those are skills like being able to communicate across difference. So however you, you, you shake it up, whether you are looking to make sure young people can get a job, social and emotional skills are gonna be important. Whether you wanna make sure that young people can participate in society through their skills and through who they are, social and emotional skills are gonna be important. It sounds to me like we need to teach our colleges how to be paying attention to the things that actually matter rather than make arguments about uh, why academics is more important. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, I think we could just end today's conversation right there. Man. I think well, we're good. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I really appreciate those words, David. Uh, thank you. Absolutely, for sure. All right. So, you know, a lot of classroom teachers out there, such as myself, a lot of us are, you know, obviously struggling during this pandemic and, and distance learning. And there's a lot of teachers out there who are staring back at the Zoom screen and just see a bunch of boxes with initials in it. You know, we, we see a lot of uh, teachers struggling to engage students and, and get students feeling comfortable turning on their cameras and being as comfortable and engaged as maybe pre-pandemic teaching. So we're wondering, what are you seeing out there with regards to um, strategies that that are working for, for creating and sustaining um, practices that support social emotional learning? 
So this is a really great question. Thank you, Manuel, for, for asking it. Um, as you know, we work uh, in New York City, 22 schools, 23 schools across the city. Uh, we also consult across the country. Uh, obviously, we've done some work in Los Angeles, Tennessee, Houston, Syracuse. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time trying to understand um, two things. Um, one is how do we ensure that students can activate and deploy social emotional skills in order to be successful? Uh, and then two, how do we organize systems and structures in schools so that these approaches are sustainable? Uh, and so what we've seen in, in our network, and I'm going way back now to last March, the first thing that we saw was that schools had, who had intentionalized the social and emotional development of their staff and students made the switch over to remote learning um, a lot more uh, easily, right? It was a lot more smooth. So uh, advisories were the, the organizing principles of those schools. And that meant that the teacher-student relationship was really grounded in this notion of, I see you as a person, I see you as a young person first, and I see you as a student as another part of that identity. And so our, definitely our schools had really put a lot of effort into this, made that transition more effectively. Um, in fact, when we're looking at our attendance by period and by grades, um, we see that at, at advisory, which is the place that we directly develop social emotional skills, the place that we intentionally develop community is typically the highest attended period across all of our, uh, all of our classrooms. Wow. In fact, uh, a lot of our principals are thinking, how do we use the relationships that, that are developed in advisory to kind of um, to spread to content area, to leverage on the content area space. Now, a lot of our students come from different backgrounds um, and those backgrounds are make it more or less conducive uh, to be on screen and to be interacting. I've heard teachers say, you know, David, I feel like I'm doing a podcast. I'm just speaking out into the ether. Um, and it's really, it's focused in the sixth grade and in the ninth grade is what I, I, I've been hearing, right? That these transition years by which uh, the folks, our young our students were not kind of um, inculcated into the culture in the same way that they would have been online, excuse me, in person, uh, those are the weird places that are happening. So um, I can only say that uh, making sure that students um, are, are comfortable insofar as we are solving problems versus making demands, right? So, you know, uh, when I was in California, me and Jeff hang out, uh, and one of the things we always talk about, man, is like, uh, how can I help you, right? Like, what, what's, what challenges are you facing? And he would do the same thing for me. So when our students are not engaging, it's because there's a problem that needs solved. There's a challenge that is uh, constraining their ability to do what they need to do. And our job as teachers is to help them to figure out how to move through that problem so they can be successful. So it's a challenge. I wish I had better and clarity here. Um, we are facing that same challenge. Uh, and as I listen to our principals, I'll, I'll be sure to get back to you guys and see what some of those best practices are. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that, David. And, um, you know, that that data point you were sharing around advisory and attendance being um, highest in, in the schools you work with uh, in advisory is a really profound one because, because um, one, I know in, in many cases in physical schools, schools often have the opposite challenge uh, with, you know, with sort of investment in advisory. But in this pandemic context, you know, uh, kids really wanting and yearning for connection and community and, and not just kids. Right. But especially in the context of stool of school, our students needing the social context that, you know, that has been stripped away from them. Um, and in as much as we try through Zoom, you know, it's, it's just it's hard to replicate. Um, and, and I actually want to go maybe a, a little bit further down that road, uh, David, and, and kind of share um, share a data point with you that I think, you know, to me, captures one of the real challenges uh, we have with doing social emotional learning well in a pandemic distance learning context. And here in Los Angeles, now this, this uh, data is a few years old, but the Los Angeles Unified School District found that in a 2014 screening of LAUSD students, they found that 88% of students reported experiencing three or more traumatic events in their lifetime, and that 55% of those students showed symptoms of PTSD, depression, or anxiety in, their, in this mental health 
screening, right? So we're looking at somewhere around 40% of students in the district expressing symptoms of, of PTSD, depression, or anxiety. Now, as we, as we move into what I'm kind of calling the, the winter of COVID, right? So the sunlight is getting less, the weather's getting colder, people are stuck inside, and you know, um, you know, thankfully we're maybe blessed here in LA that that's, that's less of, a, of an issue climate-wise, but nonetheless, we're kind of closing in um, in the winter. From your perspective, what is it that you think we need to be doing um, in our schools to, to really like best serve and take care of um, our, our young people and their, their mental health? Yeah, thank you, Jeff, for that question. So let me break this down into two pieces. Uh, the first numbers you talked about were about trauma and how many students had experienced uh, traumatic experiences. Um, and so one of the things that this that that number tells me is that we need to be interacting with our kids in ways that promote resilience and develops their social and emotional competencies, not waiting for them to show us that they are in need of our support, right? There's this notion that uh, um, this kid experienced trauma, so we need to treat him differently. Uh, but your numbers are telling us, right, that most of our kids have experienced difficult uh, situations in their life. So we need to be engaging with them in ways that are sensitive and supportive of that. And that's important because we're talking about teacher social and emotional competence. There is a, a concept in an SEL that says that um, I can read social cues and understand uh, environmental norms around me. Right, that's the, the students. Students demonstrate the ability to identify social cues and, and read environmental norms. But just as important for that is that in order for students to do that, teachers need to be able to respond to students' social cues in ways that demonstrate how to solve problems. All right, so we think about trauma, we think about um, uh, a, a way of understanding the world through a lens that's been distorted, right? And so kids start to understand the world um, through a, a shift that, that makes it harder for them to respond effectively in terms of what they need to do in terms of their goals, right? So, so let me think, of, think about it like this. If you got this notion of rose-colored glasses, right? When, when trauma sets in, instead of rose-colored glasses, you're seeing um, ways of thinking, people will never take care of me. I'm not worth uh, the trouble. Um, relationships are dangerous. That makes it hard for us to actually adapt to the environment, right? So the answer to that means that we need to develop our skills and competencies in terms of our students so that they can see reality for what it is and then make the decisions that are in line with what they're trying to accomplish. If, if trauma impacts me in a way that I don't wanna take responsibility for anything around me, then the answer is how do I support my young people in developing a sense of social and personal responsibility? That was the answer, regardless of the trauma experience that that student had. That was a social emotional competency, regardless of the background that that student faced. At the end of the day, we all need to have a sense of social and personal responsibility if we're gonna live in community with each other. So I would say to this first point, right, is that we need to focus a little less on trauma and focus a little more on making sure that every student has the kinds of experiences that allow them to be productive members in our community. It's not what's wrong with you, Jeff, right? It's how do I pull upon your strengths? How do I activate your skills? How do I enhance the things that allowed you to be here and do the things that you do so that you can move on in the world and contribute to society? So that would be that first piece I would say um, on, on the traumatic space. Uh, I think uh, the second question, is focused on uh, what do we need to do as educators? How do we need to organize our systems? Um, and in, in this case, you know, we, we need to understand that for a number of our kids, and in this case, a lot, large number, schools are the place in which students experience stability, right? Our parents, have a spectrum of skills. Some of our parents struggle very, very deeply, but struggle, uh, struggle to, to take care of their kids. Some of our parents struggle very deeply and do a great job, right? But the idea of school as a public good, as a common opportunity, is that we are giving all of our students one place in which they have a common opportunity to be successful. Stable, 
high quality interactions that allow our students to be successful. So what I need to put out in that context is that every interaction we have with our young people can either increase their resilience or re-traumatize them and, and make it more li less likely for them to be successful. Every interaction you have is an opportunity to help build the resilience of your young person. I'll just give you an example about my son. The other night, he, uh, he wrote a, a story, a chapter story. And I was coming down, up, I was coming up the stairs, my son's Elijah, and he's like, dad, uh, would, you, would you read this story? And you know, I was tired, it's like nine and a half hours on Zoom. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't really wanna read this story. I turned to him, I read it, and he was so proud. He, was, he really felt like, man, you know, uh, I did a really good job. Um, if we are intentional about our interactions, then our young people will benefit. If you are intentional about your interactions, the trauma histories of your kids is less important than the current history that you are providing for them right now. So that's the advice I would say. We all have the opportunity to interact with our young people in ways that produce resilience. It's not rocket science. You don't need a doctorate, right? It's about uh, high quality interactions, positive interactions. Um, and if you focus on those things, you're gonna help repair the damage and focusing on turning that pain that young people have experienced into a purpose that allows them to contribute to our country. I love that, I love that. All right, so let's let's talk about the path forward then. Um, earlier on this episode, Jeff and I were discussing the incoming administration and some advice that folks have for what they wanna see out of Biden administration and, and um, Department of Education. And you know, a lot of folks have their, their ideas and their wishes and what they wanna push, but we're wondering, um, we'd love to hear from you with regards to supporting students' social and emotional well-being. Um, what advice do you have for the incoming administration regarding um, investments and accountabilities and, and policymaking? Well, Manuel, I understand you have a pretty good line into the Biden administration. So I know that this is not just a, a, a random conversation. I look forward to, to seeing how we turn these things into <laughs> policy proposals. Um, but I think there, there are a couple of things that we really care about and that I care, I care about with regards to social and emotional learning at the federal level. Um, the first is that the federal government tends to fund a, a lot of different activities um, through the Department of Education and their research um, around things like uh, violence prevention and drug and mental health development and positive climate. Um, and so what happens at the school level is that, you know, on Monday, we're doing mental health promotion. On Tuesday, we're doing mindfulness. On, on, Thursday, on Thursday, we're doing uh, drug abuse uh, prevention. Um, and at the end of the day, these are all social and emotional skills. Uh, mental health promotion is the application of social and emotional skills with regards to how I solve problems in my emotional and mental states, right? Uh, drug abuse is, uh, or drug abuse prevention is about how I solve problems in the context of decision-making and making good decisions for me and my community. So uh, the first thing I would do is just uh, consolidate that language from the mental health to the drug abuse to the school climate, consolidate that language and use that language of social and emotional learning so that states and then districts would fund social and emotional learning directly rather than have to figure out how do these things, restorative practices, support social and emotional development, right? That would take a lot of uh, uh, bureaucracy out of it and just point us to the direction we need to go, which is promoting the social and emotional development of staff and students in order to produce citizens who can be successful. Um, secondly, I would say uh, something I was really excited about was um, a hearing about funding Title uh, Title I schools uh, in, in a way that they need to be funded, right? Really putting more funding into that space um, and, uh, and making sure that schools with Title I uh, designations get the money that they deserve. Um, you know, this is something that's been a challenge in New York City, the fair funding formulas. I know in, in Los Angeles, uh, funding is a huge issue in terms of how attendance and, and other aspects impact funding. Um, it's just, it's time to fund our schools, right? These kids are our potential to, to in, our, in our future. Um, when we fund schools, we give kids the resources they need to be successful. And these often are social and emotional experiences, after school clubs, right? Uh, uh, sports, opportunities to have mentorships. These are things that connect kids to schools. Um, in New York City, for example, the Department of Youth and um, Youth, DYCD, Department of Youth and, I forgot the last part of the acronym, 
uh, but they're focused on youth and youth engagement. And um, under the, the recent budget cut, uh, they cut their they had their summer youth employment program cut uh, by huge numbers, right? Uh, and summer youth employment has a demonstrated track record not only of decreasing crime in the city, right, but increasing relationships between young people and employment, particularly for young males, so that translates years down the line. Those are social emotional experiences. I have responsibilities because I am being taught how to work. I am being taught how to contribute to my society. It is short-sighted when we cut those things and then we increase the amount of cops on the streets because and violence goes up. That 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 makes no sense. So um, I would just say that like I, I'm interested in thinking about these funding formulas. Title I funding formulas are really important. Again, special education has been historically underfunded. It's time for the federal government to get up there and fund special education in the way that they promised when IDEA was passed. Um, these are the things that will allow for our schools to be successful. Let me just throw out one last thing. Uh, shifting the definition of school success from student achievement to student growth. This is something that's been on my mind for a long time. We've been advocating at the Urban Assembly in the context of state policies. Um, but right now, all of our schools have a disincentive to enroll to support students with disabilities, to support students uh, of English language learners, to support students uh, of low-income backgrounds. And so the game across the country is how do I screen out kids who need the most support uh, as most effectively as possible? And then the schools who screen out those kids the most effectively then get toted as the highest achieving schools. That's nonsense, right? Those are schools who are just taking high achieving kids and corralling them in their space. I have respect for schools who are able to demonstrate growth across the spectrum. Students with English language learners, students with special ed. And I envision a future in which those schools are lifted up and we call them high impact schools. And then all of a sudden, now the incentive is not to screen kids out, but to actually deliver a common public good, which is high quality education across the space. So Title I funding, uh, in terms of uh, making sure we get our low-income schools what they deserve, special education funding, and redefining um, school growth, school, excuse me, school achievement from growth, uh, from achievement to growth. Those are the things that I'd love to see pass in this uh, new administration. Yeah. Well, David, um, you know, first of all, now that we will have a new secretary of education, uh, perhaps we'll have someone in that office who actually understands the difference between uh, proficiency and growth. Um, so that's maybe a, a sign of hope. But also, step one. Step one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. An important step one. Uh, but also, I really do just want to um, just thank you for being with us uh, here again today, David. I feel like every time I have the opportunity to interact with you, um, I learn something new, and you know, uh, you help me see. Uh, uh, some of these just just complex but fundamental issues in our profession in in important and new ways. And today was certainly no exception to that. So thank you so much uh, for joining us again here on All the Above. Jeff, Manuel, I, I look forward to getting out to California and seeing you in person. You guys do a great job on this show. I look forward to being able to work with you in the future. All right. Wonderful. Well, folks, uh, we have reached the end of today's seminar. Next up is today's Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? If you're not already following us on social media, man, what are you doing? We're available on Twitter, at AOTA Show, and on Facebook, also, at AOTA Show. And we've been putting up extras, including exit tickets. Exit tickets are short videos with our guests where we ask them about a few of their favorite things. Of course, we also put up links and, and, and articles and stories related to the world of education. So definitely, if you're not already, please consider following us on social media and spreading the word. Now back to the show. All right, folks, we have reached that time in the episode that we call our class dismissed. It's a time we like to pause, reflect for a moment, give some uh, special love and shout outs to people out there in education doing just good work. So, Manuel, who are we shouting out today? Yeah, well, Jeff, um, you know, we, we spent this episode discussing some of the challenges with distance learning, and we know that it's um, very tough stuff. And a lot of kids out there, could really use some help, some like homework and, and tutoring help. So, you know, we want to shout out a congresswoman who 
organized or whose team organized a, a voluntary service for folks to volunteer to help tutor and um, you know help kids with their homework. And you know we just think it's pretty dope for for a congressperson to do this. So we want to shout out Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Now she tweeted out a few weeks ago a sign-up sheet for folks to voluntarily sign up to join her team of homework helpers. She said in her tweet, sign up to be a homework helper for kids and working families who could really use a helping hand during the challenges of remote learning. All it takes is one hour a week for four weeks. Never tutored before? We'll train you. And their site was overwhelmed with folks signing up. They they closed it at 13,000. That's 13,000 people who have volunteered to be homework helpers, which is Super dope. I mean, obviously, there's lots of folks talking about what could or should happen and be done about distance learning. And here we have a, a congressperson putting together a team of volunteers to at least handle some some homework help and some tutoring for for um, our most marginalized kids. So, you know, we think that's that's pretty dope. And over here on all of the above, we are fans of AOC, despite what you might see in the comments on our YouTube channels of, of folks, you know, coming out here from from the right, trying to trying to, uh, you know, <laughs> talk about how bad our, our progressive view of education might be. We are big fans of AOC and all that she's doing to help folks out, particularly things like this, helping out kids who are, you know, really struggling during these times. So shout out to her. Yeah, man, I, I'll just echo that and say as a, as a former New Yorker, as a former Bronx principal, as someone who lived and worked in the Bronx and uh, lived in Queens, uh, I shout out to AOC, appreciate her, her efforts on behalf of the children in her district, and also... Interesting enough, this is the kind of stuff that can happen when your member of Congress doesn't spend five, six hours a day picking up the phone, calling rich people, asking for money. So just a, an interesting thought about what might be possible if we had more leaders uh, who were more interested in serving their constituents than um, you know raising the next buck that they need uh, for a campaign. So uh, shout out to AOC and uh, folks, Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, as always, we appreciate your, your time and your attention with us. And um, we would love your support by just going in, giving a thumbs up for today's episode. Share this with, uh, with friends, with colleagues, with folks you know who might be interested. If you're listening on the podcast, give us that five stars. Um, it really helps us out. Um, every little bit of love uh, is, is much appreciated and helps us spread the word about all the above to everybody else out there. Of course, as always, you can find all of our content on aotashow.com. That's aotashow.com, our website, and we will see you next time. <laughs>